The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the AI arms race, what the turmoil at OpenAI means for Microsoft, for Alphabet, and for investors in that space. We will discuss and debate with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour, Josh Brown, Joe Terranova, Liz Young, Jenny Harrington. Taking you to the markets here, so we're coming off the third straight positive week. Hey, the Russell. Take a look at the Russell. It's up again after a 5% week. Yields, as you see at the bottom of your screen, are stable. And we even have a little bit of a pickup overall in the market as we come on the air today. Josh Brown, I'll go to you first. Um, I looked up. I got Apple above 190. I got it above 191. Do you know the 52-week high is is 198? Um, We're looking at 169 recently. We'll get to the Microsoft news, of course, in just a moment. But uh, your commentary on the market as we begin a new week. Look, I think it's back to what a lot of us have been talking about, which is, yes, it's really nice to have participation. It's really nice when the internals repair themselves, when the equal weight S&P starts to gain some ground back. Of course, we would love to see small caps rally, et cetera, et cetera. But in the end, if you're a portfolio manager and the benchmark you live and die based on every quarter is the S&P 500, it's going to be whether or not Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA, these large cap names are getting the job done or they're not. And right now they absolutely are. It certainly helps if we think we've seen the last of the rate hikes or we think we saw something of a blow off top, uh, maybe an intermediate term rates two weeks ago. Like, of course, that certainly helps. The seasonality is really important, too. But let's just all keep in mind. These large cap technology stocks, the Nasdaq up 40 some odd percent going into Thanksgiving week. This is career risk. If you're not part of this, we saw a pretty prominent hedge fund uh, short that that had been, uh, you know, famously short for many years. Talk about how challenged uh, the business model is for equity long short. All sorts of managers are just looking at that number and they can't believe how much the market's up. And a lot of it is AI related and blah, blah, blah. But in the end, like, that's the story. So I think that's what takes us into year end, barring any sort of exogenous shock. There's no reason to think that these stocks won't continue to get it done just as they have been pretty much relentlessly since uh, this past March. Yeah, Liz, um, the runway looks good to you. Um, The Q's now highest level since January of 22. To Josh's point about mega cap, I'm looking at, at my screen here and I've got every one but one. Uh, in the green and and nicely so today. Yeah, well, think about what pressured those stocks from the end of July into August and September. It was higher rates. It was a resurgence in inflation. Both of those things have all but been taken off the table in the last couple weeks. So I think it makes sense that there's a run here. Also, to Josh's point, absent some exogenous shock or absent some sort of data that none of us were expecting, I do think there's still room for a rally to continue. And that's coming from somebody who's been pretty cautious all year. But the reality is that lower rates and the idea of a soft 
soft landing still being possible and if not priced into the market unless there's something standing in its way, which I don't think we're going to get really nervous about from a macroeconomic point until early next year. The rally can keep going and we probably grind through this for a while. All right. So let's let's do Microsoft um, and, and, and get that story going, Joe, because it's up, you know, one point six percent. $375. By now, everybody knows the story. They hire Sam Altman to lead their new AI team. All this drama at OpenAI. Uh, now, what you know, some are, are calling chaos and, and what that's all going to mean. You just want to scratch the surface first with as a, as a Microsoft shareholder, what you're thinking about, and then we'll present some of the arguments around what this really means. It's remarkable because a $13 billion investment, which gives you 49% of the company, you actually get more than you were getting with that investment with the intellectual capital that you're acquiring here with Sam Altman and others joining. I suspect there'll be more to follow from OpenAI. This is certainly something that will benefit Microsoft. It's also going to benefit Meta. And I think that's one of the reasons why Meta is at its highest level since December of 2021. Let's remember that OpenAI has 92% of Fortune 500 companies, 2 million customers. Well, a lot of those customers right now, Scott, are looking elsewhere in terms of software and Meta can offer with its LLM, its large language model, uh, Llama, a, a, a clear alternative. So Meta's benefiting there as well. Um, this is obviously something, as I said, that speaks strongly to Microsoft. And it's a reminder. It's a reminder what this year has been about. What this year has been about with generative AI and the contribution that it has had to the overall market. And it's the reason why the NASDAQ 100 today is at its highest level for the year on an intraday basis. So I'll come back to you. You, yes. you know, so they get they have 49 percent of open AI, which was said to be valued at at eighty six billion dollars. What's it worth now? You can't answer the question anymore because you don't know with the chaos and the so-called brain drain and all of this turmoil. So what is that interest yeah, so really worth? Is it the coup for Microsoft that it's being portrayed? Now, Dan Ives would suggest absolutely it is. He calls this a world series of poker move for the ages. Those are his words. Quote, we view Microsoft now even in a stronger position from an AI perspective with Altman and Brockman at, at Microsoft running AI. I, I completely agree with that. And I, I think the interesting thing about it is, look, they were thinking of selling shares in October. A lot of employee shares were going to be sold. Valuation, as you said, 86 billion, somewhere around 80 to 90 billion. So obviously, I think the company right now is, is in, I don't want to use the word perilous, but it is certainly in a injured condition relative to where it was previously. Um, there, there was, back to 2018 in the initial stages, you had Peter Thiel, you had Reid Hoffman, and you had Elon Musk that were behind find, uh, funding this company. And one of the critical things that they did at that time was they took the chief scientist from Alphabet and they brought him over. Why did they do that? Because they wanted to slow down Alphabet's AI intentions. So I, I think now with Microsoft, in control of that intellectual capital, I think you also have to ask yourself, what's the derivative effect on Alphabet? Is Alphabet in a better or a worse position because you have uh, Altman and Brookman over at Microsoft? Well, I mean, there, there is a view. I've seen some suggestions today, Jenny, too, that the turmoil at OpenAI and the prospect of, of losing hundreds of employees allows others like um, Google, Right. Maybe Meta, 
Anthropic uh, to catch up. If, you know, if, if OpenAI slows down, in quotes, because one of the issues that led to this moment allegedly was this moving too fast deal, is that great for Microsoft, which is still reliant on Copilot and the intellectual property of, of OpenAI? And then what about the, the implications of if now Microsoft is going to ramp up its own efforts, so to speak, rather than be uber-reliant on OpenAI, what does that mean from a cost standpoint for Microsoft, realizing it on its own balance sheet rather than not um, potentially losing money in the near term because who knows when it's going to be more profitable? You know, all of these implications, I'm wondering how shareholders should be thinking about that. You know, it, it makes me think about what my argument's been on NVIDIA too, which is wherever there's a lot of money to be made, right? And we know there's a lot of money to be made in AI. Competition gets crazy and fierce and everyone's coming for the jugular of the firms that are at the heart of it. So that's kind of what we're seeing here, right? That the competition is super heating up. No. We've been seeing it, yes. And we've been seeing, Josh is saying no in my ear. <laughs> and uh, and we're seeing it at the chip makers too. So NVIDIA is the leading chip maker. You see AMD coming for them. You see Google, you see Microsoft creating their own Amazon on creating their own chips. Same thing here on the AI software space. Everybody wants a piece of it. So it's super hot, it's super It's super expensive. I think you're right, Scott, that clearly it's gonna take a hit on the balance sheet because no one's making any money besides NVIDIA. No one's making any money off of AI right now. So I hear this and I think it is an amazing story, right? And you read Dan, what, uh, sorry, Dan Ives's notes and, and you know what, like that's an incredible story. But what does he raise his price target to? He raises his price target to 425. So he's saying, Saying like, wow, look at this glossy, glitzy, great story. And you know what 425 is? It's 13% upside from here. And that and that's after a year of Microsoft being up 56%. So I, I just think, think that after, you know, you I've heard look, I've I've read, you know, a bunch of stuff on on various social platforms about how people are are framing this, Josh. I want to know why you were saying no to what Jenny was saying as well. But the idea that, you know, while on the surface it may be a coup for Microsoft to get Altman and this other gentleman as well, there are you know, balance sheet implications, there are potential competitive implications to all of this that may not be as rosy as it would appear just based on the headlines alone. Yeah, so the first thing is that there's what's really going on and then there's what's going on from the perspective of people that are trying to make sense of it in the stock market. And I was saying no to what Jenny started doing, which was to say that this is like a, this is because there's competition. It was like backing into a justification for not owning NVIDIA. That has no, nothing to do with any of it. Yes, it was. And no, it by wasn't. the way, that argument that competition is coming has, has been the same argument for a thousand percentage points in NVIDIA. So I want to put that aside and focus on what Scott asked. What are the implications for Microsoft, for Anthropic, which is Amazon's bet, um, and for Alphabet, which most importantly for me, like what, what, is, what is the read through? I would say based on speaking with people uh, since all of this has started to break and it's nowhere near being over, but what it seems like is Alphabet is going to get a reprieve from uh, people cold calling its engineers offering 10 and $20 million salary plus stock option compensation packages. They are going to get a much needed reprieve from that because all of a sudden, it's not a slam dunk to go work on ChatGPT and DALI. All of a sudden, it's not the obvious move and they are not necessarily now going to remain the most dominant 
platform with a consumer-facing product. Sam Altman is hugely important. Microsoft did the right thing by its shareholders, keeping him in-house, not allowing him and Greg Brockman to recruit everyone out of OpenAI and start a third-party business. I think that's really good news if you own shares of Microsoft. Politically speaking, Sam Altman has been not only behind the scenes building the technology, but sitting with Chuck Schumer's congressional working group, testifying respectfully, patiently, while the people who are least informed about AI ask the most inane questions. He was doing that type of AI work, away from tech as well, and that is equally important, so keeping him is key. I think Alphabet had a nice weekend. Uh, you know, the, the, a little bit of the pressure is off on the competitive side. And then I think for Amazon, Anthropic had a great weekend because now there's room. Now it's not just this automatic thing where it's all chat GPT. So I really feel that that's behind the rally that we're seeing today mm -hmm. in the MAG7. Um, every, it's a little bit of something for everyone. The losers are the four board, me four board members at OpenAI. I understand their uh, desire to go slowly and be circumspect, et cetera, et cetera. Unfortunately, the barn doors are open. The horses have already bolted. There will be safety concerns for as long as we see this technology develop. But Sam Altman released ChatGPT3 a year ago last week, way before it was ready for prime time. That's just the nature of tech breakthroughs. No one's going to be happy with the pace. And I think OpenAI is the big loser here. Fortunately for Microsoft, they're not going to live and die based on that situation going forward. Right, Jenny, I mean, the, the sort of, maybe it's counterintuitive, maybe not. The, the way to look at this is that, as Josh puts forth, it, it actually strengthens the other's efforts rather than distinctly hurts them as you would initially see a headline say, wow, Microsoft got you know, Altman, Brockman, the rest are in big trouble. Maybe not, maybe not. I mean, you know, I generally don't invest in this space anyway. And just one correction on what Josh said. No, Josh, it's not an excuse on why I don't own NVIDIA. The reason I do that is because it's a disciplined portfolio that has a 5% or better free cash flow yield mandate. So I'd love to own it, but I can't. But to your point, Scott, which is what you actually care about, but to your point, I think it to me just says, like, this space is hyper-competitive. And when we think back to Meta and the Metaverse and how much money they wasted on that, to me, AI, there's just, it's just not profitable right now. And I think what we see is this just notched up competition, like a huge magnitude. Allegedly, no I mean, it's, it, it, that remains to be seen. Okay, but if there it is really money to be made. It really does remain to be seen. I'm not, okay. I don't ask the question with a, a point of right, view right, or perspective but, in asking it. I'm, I'm simply suggesting that, you know, is it as cut and dry a coup for Microsoft as the initial headlines would have you believe. I don't think so, and I think so when Josh says it was a great weekend for Alphabet. Okay, so it's a great weekend as the story goes, then why is the stock up only 0.61%? Why is Microsoft up only 1.6% today? The re but here's the thing, because nobody knows how much money can actually be made off of it. And when you want to, as an investor, you want but to know where the money's coming from. The, maybe, Josh, the like, but, there's still, but who knows how much needs maybe. to be spent. Maybe the pie's growing, but we don't know how much needs to be spent. And when is the end game? When does the end game where it's actually profitable? Like when does that hit? There's too much ambiguity here for anyone to say, okay, Microsoft's gonna make a hundred billion dollars off of this, therefore the share price should be X amount more. And I think that kind of is what your point is, Scott. It just is more ambiguous. Like Well, Joe Joe, you own Alphabet too. Do you feel like you're in a better position today for 
uh, being a shareholder of a company where the narrative was from the get-go that Microsoft stole the advantage from under Alphabet's roof? Um, do you feel like you're in a better position now to close that perceived gap? Yes, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll tell you exactly why. This is, this is an example of an industry in which a company that has a valuation of roughly 80 to 90 billion dollars, but has a very deep bench of intellectual talent. Now what happens? You have Microsoft and you have the in universe of the Magnificent Seven, who are trillion dollar companies, who have free cash flow generation twice the size of what the valuation of OpenAI is, who are able to go in and capture the talent and bring the, the talent over. And I don't think this is a winner take all. I think this is a situation where all can be winners. Right, but there was there there has been the perception at least that it was a, you know, winners, a small group of winners take most. At least in the beginning, whether it's Microsoft well, big, or NVIDIA. The big competitive that's, but that's because, go ahead, Josh. Sorry, the big competitive threat here was to Alphabet. Let's be very clear. Yes. In the winners versus losers world, and we documented this on the show all year long, in the winners versus losers world, the problem for Alphabet, and Brad Gerstner told this story over the weekend um, where, where he sat with Satya Nadella years ago, and Satya Nadella said on search, we will never beat Google at the game where somebody puts in a search term and we return 10 blue links. So what is different now? The way that we use Google is we ask a question and we get a breadcrumb trail of links to follow to find out the answer. ChatGPT enabled Microsoft Bing just gives us the answer. No links. And one of the brilliant things, one of the many brilliant things that Sam Altman did, if you use ChatGPT, when you ask it a question, it does that dot, 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 and it takes a beat before it starts to print out the answer. Do you know that that's actually deliberate on Sam's part to give you, the user, the impression that there's some sort of magic happening behind the scenes? It actually doesn't need that pause. It could start spitting out the answer within a nanosecond if it wanted to. That's the level of thought that's gone into that GPT product and giving people the answer versus Google, which tells you where to find the answer, that was the horse race. I still think that that's a threat to Google, and I say that as an Alphabet shareholder, but what is at stake now? What is at stake is if enough talent is up for grabs, AI talent, which is very finite, mm -hmm. that these other mm -hmm. players now got a moment to catch their breath. By the way, this almost never happens. This was the leader in AI imploding, just literally, just as it was completely taking dominance of the whole thing. That almost never happens in technology. That's why this is such a big story, because everyone else now gets to take a breath and go on offense. It really looked like ChatGPT was gonna wrap up the whole thing. Right. And now There's, that's not, so, not, not such a, a slam dunk. NASDAQ's um, outperforming again today. Uh, we're two years removed from the last closing all-time high. Uh, on this date two years ago. Hmm. Jonathan Krinsky, BTIG, pointing out you have the biggest Q's inflows on record, NASDAQ 100, a as we follow it. Uh, mega cap performance month to date, Amazon's up nine and a half, and uh, NVIDIA's up 22% month to date. You got Meta 12 and a half, Microsoft 11, Alphabet 12. These stocks have been running. Mm -hmm. Is there any reason, um, and this just, I guess this story just underscores why the money continues to go for, to this space from investors or, or otherwise. Yep. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I think in the last, let's say, two to three years, we've learned as investors that these are both defensive and offensive stocks, and that if we're rate dependent, these stocks are going to do well when rates fall. They've even done well when rates rise. So when investors get scared, they do flock to these names. The AI theme that has driven a lot of the price action this year will continue to drive price action. I think we still are in the midst of what will be a boom and bust cycle because it's a new theme, because we still don't know who the big winner is. And the story today further underscores that. And we're going to try to find who that big, big winner is as time goes on. What could change it is as data continues to weaken, although it will bring rates down and that will be a tailwind for stocks like this, as data continues to weaken, at some point it gets too weak, people get nervous. If we start to unprice a soft landing, if we start to really worry about cuts happening as a reactive thing rather than a proactive thing, that's where correlations rise and everybody gets hurt. However, tech will continue to be the story. It is obviously the biggest sector in the indexes. It's the biggest sector that touches every single sector in our economy. If you believe in the future of the American economy, you have to be invested in tech stocks. It's just a matter of how far overweight do you want to be and how concentrated do you want to be in that space. There are others, Joe, like Adam Parker, Trivariate, who's going to be on with me later on Closing Bell, who believe that you should buy other areas of the market now. Mm -hmm. Energy, materials, healthcare. If there's a rotation earlier in the year, he says, our view is that healthcare and staples could justifiably benefit. And if rates are close to peaking, that could be a catalyst. We're recommending energy materials, healthcare, disfavor financials, no consumer discretionary, no industrials. What do you think? Well, I, I think coming into the weekend, that was the appearance of what the market rotation was going to be. You had the Russell 2000, which was approaching 1830, which was last Wednesday's uh, peak price for it. It looked as though you were going to get the Russell that was going to break out once again. But the news over the weekend now allows the Nasdaq once again to take the lead in what has been a 2023 in which it's been the lead. In January, could you see those sectors take the lead uh, for uh, the market? I think yes. I think there's no reason why you couldn't expect that. I think you can position in that direction. But if you are going to position that direction, just ensure that everything that you own in energy, healthcare, and materials is defined by quality and that these are not companies that are highly indebted. You know what I think? I think that tech is going to be the story, but that doesn't mean necessarily that it's going to be the source of highest returns. And if we think back to 2022, 2022 was a terrible year for tech. And it was still the primary story. And the reason it's the primary story is because it's the most interesting. So even if financials and materials lead and utilities lead, they're not as interesting. So we just need to remember that the story isn't necessarily where you're going to make the most money. Where are you going to make the most money then? I still think, I think Adam's right. Josh and I got into it last week on small cap. I think there's a good chance for that. If we think about the market bottoming, like most recently on the 27th of October, you know what? S&P's up 10% since then. You know what else is up the same? The Russell 2000. And so I think we've seen some broadening, but I think that we're going to not, I think the most money that's going to be made next year is going to be in areas outside of tech yeah, and I mean, outside of mega to, cap. We have to transition though back to an early cycle, right? We have to get back to early cycle behavior for something like small caps, industrials, discretionary financials to really come off the mat and continue upward in a durable fashion. And I think that's the part that we don't know the answer to yet. If we stay in this area and we stay late cycle and debate whether or not we're going into a recession, we're just still late cycle and tech and large cap probably does pretty well. 
once we get back into early cycle and feel differently about that, that's when it's time to buy small caps. And that's coming from somebody who always wants to buy small caps. No, but that, that, that reflects what Michael Hartnett of Bank of America is talking about, who says he's sellers, he would be sellers of crowded, quote, no landing plays into the into a recession. Right. Magnificent Seven, the Semiconductor, the XHB, XBI, Biotech, XBD, and buyers of hard landing plays when the recession actually hits, to your That's point, right. exactly, right. whether yep. it's small caps or banks or retail, utility staples, et cetera. It's just trying to time that out is going to be the, the tough part. Um, who knows if we're going to go into a recession or not. So it sounds great on paper, but in practice, it may be different. Yeah. yeah, well, and I think the data through the end of the year, the data will tell us whether or not that's the case. But I also think investors nah. are going to start to get worried. It, not, not really. In the six weeks, well, the next six it'll weeks. It'll keep cooling and it'll probably be good. Bad news is good news for a little while, right? A cooling labor market, cooling inflation will be OK. But then you that's start to news. pair it up <laughs> in the in the early part of next year where you've got consumers. Now we now we'll know what holiday spending looked like. I'm expecting it to be weaker than usual. We'll find out holiday spending might have been weaker than usual. You've got consumers that spent more on credit cards. The bill comes due. Delinquencies pick up. There are rational ways that it could bake through into the market, and that's where it gets. Yeah. Oh, by the way, another thing to mention before we take a break, VIX 13 and a half. VIX 13 and a half. VIX 13 and a half. Let's see what happens at one o'clock, by the way. I just want to mention that you have a 20-year auction, $16 billion worth of paper. We all know what happened the last time we auctioned 30-year paper. The market got a little uncomfortable with that. Let's see what happens at one. All right, we're 25 in. We got 35 left. Up next, we'll do our chart of the day. We got a fresh 52-week high for this stock that Josh, Joe, and Jenny all own. We are back after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Chart of the day, it's Uber. We made it the chart of the day because it reversed early losses. Now it's positive. In fact, it's a new 52-week high today. Josh, you take that first. Uh, this is my favorite stock still, even at this price. Um, I own it lower. I'm not adding to it, but I will not sell it. I think this company will be added to the S&P 500 very shortly. I'm not sure how much of that is already priced in. I would, I would guess not all. Um, this is going to be a cash flow machine. They have vanquished their competitors. It has an underappreciated potential to become the next great platform company. The platform is mobility. You want to move a bag of chips. You want to move a person. You want to get something freighted. You want to get somebody to the airport, whatever. Uber is the go-to. They have, uh, they have uh, in my view, the most competitive place in the landscape for mobility. 
and this is very underappreciated still, and that's why the stock continues to move higher every day. Jenny, you make a mistake trimming this in September? No, I don't think so. So I think it's interesting because the same reason we don't own NVIDIA because of that free cash flow yield discipline is the reason that we bought Uber last May 2022 when it's trading at $23 a share. And it had a huge free cash flow yield. So when Josh says it's a free cash flow machine, yeah, that's true. And actually, when we bought it, we thought it'd be $2 billion of free cash flow in 24, $4 billion in 25. And by the way, they're well ahead of that. Now it's $3 billion and $5 billion. But you know what the problem is? The problem is the stock's up 143% since we bought it, which means that the free cash flow yield is now down to 4.1%. So even though the story is wonderful, you have to look at the valuation. And the valuation says to us, it's already accounted for. And you know what else I think is accounted for? I think the inclusion in the S&P 500 might be, because every time we've talked about it on this show for the past couple weeks, Joe's reminded me and Josh has reminded me that it's going to be included. And so when I look at that analyst chart that you showed a minute ago, and it says 98% of analysts have a buy on it, this is where the whole like sell high, buy low triggers off for me. I think we're unlikely to own it in a couple months from now. It's just getting expensive. You have to use the discipline. Josh, and I keep it in there. You want to, you want to, comment on that? She's right that the stock has gotten more expensive because it has gone up in excess of the fundamental growth. But I think Jenny has to allow for the possibility that what's actually happened here, in addition to the fundamentals getting better, is that the stock itself has gotten a re-rating. And I don't think uh, that we want to look at this relative to its own history and what historically people have been willing to pay for it. I think we now want to consider the possibility that it is joining such names as Adobe and Apple and Alphabet as like a gigantic platform around which the gross volume of all transactions continues to get larger. And by the way, a lot of people are pointing to Uber valuation, whatever, and then they own Apple. They own these companies that are great companies but not growing at all. Uber's compound revenue growth rate over the last five years is like over 30%. There are not a lot of these types of companies out there that you can invest in. So that re-rating sometimes comes from the perspective of scarcity. There aren't four Ubers. There's one Uber. And they own their category, and that ain't changing. And by the way, the biggest com potential competitive threat to Uber up until today was GM's Cruise and Google's Waymo. You think anyone thinks that right now? I don't. I think the question is, is it in the process of continuing to re-rate or has it been re-rated? And in my mind, it's sure. almost entirely re-rated. And if you look at analysts' um, price targets, the max they're getting to right now is about 60. So if you say the street's expecting 60, you've got about 10% upside from here. We're already up 143% in a year and a half. I just think the re-ratings mostly happen. I don't think there's much to go from here. Joe, what do you think? You I, think two in the I think stock goes into the mid-60s. I think they've captured significant market share from Lyft. And I think if you you look at the debt market, which was one of the reasons why Uber was down early this morning, one of the easiest things you could do as a debt investor is identify a company that's currently high yield with the conviction that they will ultimately be investment grade. And that's exactly what the condition is for Uber. They are currently high yield. If you could own those bonds, go out and buy them all day long because they ultimately will be investment grade. All right, let's get the headlines now with Bertha Coombs. Hey, Bertha. Hey, how are you, Scott? The Supreme Court will not hear an appeal from former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. Chauvin was convicted of murdering George Floyd during an arrest in 2020, which sparked global protests against police brutality and racism. 
racism. The justices supported a Minnesota appellate court's decision that upheld the 2021 conviction and rejected Chauvin's request for a new trial. Two U.S. senators said subpoenas have been sent to chief executives at Discord, Snap, and X for a December hearing on online child sexual exploitation. Discord and X reportedly refused to accept subpoenas on behalf of their CEOs, prompting the assistance of the U.S. Marshals Service to personally serve those documents. The Senate Judiciary Committee said Meta and TikTok CEOs are expected to testify voluntarily. And President Biden is celebrating his 81st birthday by pardoning two turkeys. This morning, Liberty and Bell were pardoned as part of the 76th annual National Thanksgiving Turkey Ceremony. Two turkeys came all the way from Willamar, Minnesota, and have been staying at the luxurious Willard Intercontinental near the White House. It's always amazing how those birds get the best accommodations. No doubt. Willard's nice. All right, Bertha, thanks. Bertha Coombs. Up next, ETF Edge. We'll find out where the biggest opportunities are right now in the ETF space as we run towards the end of the year. Halftime's back just after this. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the ETF Edge portion of the show. I'm Kate Rooney, in for Bob Pisani today. So far, November has been a stellar month for stocks, but some experts say a large chunk of money that was previously sent to cash and short-term treasuries will remain what some are calling scared money. Joining me now, Matt Bartolini is the head of Spider America's research for State Street. And then we've got Dan Egan, managing director of behavioral finance and investing over at Betterment. Dan, we're going to start with you. Thank you both, first of all, for joining us. But Dan, kick it off for us. Define that term for us, scared money. What needs to change in the investing landscape for folks to get a little bit of confidence and for those funds to potentially shake loose here? It is one of those funny things. Sometimes it feels like we can have a very short memory when it comes to previous macro environments. It was just a little while ago that we had 0% interest rates. And now my big concern is we've had about 5% interest rates. The move to high yield savings accounts has been pretty pronounced. Betterment has one of them. We've seen dramatic inflows over the past few years. Uh, And that's good when rates are high. But now it looks like the Fed might have successfully um, landed the landing. And Moving into a more normalized interest rate environment, the trade-off between cash and investing is going to change. And that's hard for people. Cash, the move to cash from investing feels very safe. You're taking risk off the table and you're still getting a good nominal return. Going the opposite way doesn't feel good. You are taking um, a lower yielding asset. It feels scary. You're going to be exposed to volatility. And you're also confronted by more choices. What sort of funds, what ETFs, what risk level you're going to take on? The whole conversation about what duration bond somebody has to go into is not something that retail investors usually want to discuss. So right now, I think we're going to find ourselves in an unusual position of knowing that we should start talking to clients about the move into riskier assets over the next three to five years, preparing them mentally for it. But it's going to feel uncomfortable for a long time. Matt, over to you on that. So with so much money specifically in short-term treasuries, that's going to roll over. Investors are going to face this choice. Do they reinvest or are they going to move into stocks? What's your sense of what happens here? What are the flows telling you? 
Well, I mean, reinvestment risk is real for those that are in those ultra short duration, you know, money market like funds. I think rather than going maybe lock, stock and barrel into stocks, you know, given your risk profile, that probably doesn't match up, but maybe moving just further up the curve. So owning maybe in the one to three year duration space, because even so, if the Fed starts to cut rates, those portions do face some reinvestment risk. But you're still getting this elevated yield environment and the volatility in that space is at relatively low as well. So it's a little bit of a baby step out of the, the sort of cash portion of your holdings and sort of express some risk, but not overstep your bounds at the same time and sort of generate that yield that you, you know, were sort of used to doing and have more of a total return mindset at the same time. Gentlemen, thank you both. And uh, Scott, we'll send it back over to you. All right, Kate, appreciate that very much. Kate Rooney, we'll have much more, by the way, coming up. ETF Edge with Kate at 1 o'clock Eastern Time. Up next, Mike Santoli. He's here with his Midday Word. We're right back. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. We're back. It's Santoli's Midday Word sitting here with me here. Uh, two stocks so indicative yeah. of where we've come to. NVIDIA, as I've said repeatedly, was 400 bucks on Halloween. It's 498 yeah. today. Um, Apple's 191 today. The Nasdaq's up 10% in a month. Yeah, there's no instinct drop, yet to, drop. to sell the winners uh, year to date. You know, if you look at the upside contributors to the S&P today, Lily's there as well. So it is just about, you know, those killer app favorites that already have worked. Um, now, the, the S&P has already given you the average fourth quarter gain, so it's up about 6%. In up years, you get a little bit more than that. So it's one of those deals where you did have some elements of a chase. You saw people reposition toward the winners, toward uh, the index-type names to get make sure they participated. doesn't mean it's over. It doesn't mean we're running too hot. It looks a lot like the June-July breakout, where it was just this upward grind after you finally gapped higher, uh, even when we got overbought. So um, it's tough to say you know, which way the next couple of percent uh, moves, but it does feel as if days like today show you for the moment path of least resistance. Joe was mentioning, you know, you got a bond auction coming up. Yeah, right. That, yeah. That's been volatile, uh, to say the least. Yeah. And the yield on the 10-year right now is 446. It's so, hovering. See. Yeah. And, you know, the 20-year maturity has been this kind of orphan. You know, nobody sort of was asking for it. It's a little bit funky how it trades. But I do think that's the kind of stuff we have to keep in mind in terms of what disturbs this setup. Yeah. You know, I mean, peak yields, peak Fed, peak inflation, uh, we're all part of the story, peak oil even, uh, in terms of price. So, um, yeah, got to monitor it. And uh, breadth isn't, isn't wonderful today, and we've been getting by on that for a while now. Peak AI. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't tell everything. the Microsoft bidders today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, I'll all see right. you on Closing Bell. Mike Santoli, coming up, our calls of the day. We'll do a price target increase for one consumer stock. It's already up 25% this year. We'll get the committee's take on it next. All right, calls of the day. Let's start with Costco. Joe, we'll do that with you. Target raised to 660 from 630 at Loop. They reiterate their buy rating despite slowing inflation. Costco doesn't sound any more likely to raise its membership fee. So they also call it a core holding, which is exactly what it is for me, mm -hmm. uh, in particular with the Quality Momentum Joe T ETF. It's been in there since inception. It's been a name that has been uh, rewarded us with strong sales growth over the last 
36 months, you're talking about 13%. That's very difficult to find for a consumer staple company. Also understand the international expansion for this company, the opportunity there is real. Um, I think this company is benefiting from its scale and benefiting, benefiting rather from its membership program. All right, so Josh, give me a take on housing. As I mentioned that KB gets downgraded. Not that you own that, you own Invitation, but that's the way you've been playing it. Downgraded to neutral from outperform Wedbush, price target 55, they cite valuation. Yeah, I mean, the, the, home, the home builders have definitely outperformed what anyone on earth would have expected. If I spotted you in January, I gave you where Fed funds were going and mortgage rates would be eight and a quarter nationally. Um, most people would have expected the typical home building stock to get cut in half. But most people, myself included, really didn't understand the degree to which we were underhoused and how small the supply was. And that is why these stocks have held up so well. So I do understand the downgrade. I probably would ignore it. If I were a buyer, I would continue to buy in this group. And that is one of the better names you can own. Liz, what about housing stocks? Uh, housing, I mean, housing adjacent, obviously suffering from a reduction in consumer spending and big durable items. I think housing stocks in general, home builders probably can still do okay as rates are falling. And if we look forward, you know, I think everybody's been expecting home prices to come down, but if rates keep falling, the demand for buying homes goes up. And I don't know that prices are going to That's fall right. the way that everybody expects. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. ITB is up 43% year to date. XHB it's demographics. is up 36.5. Also keep in mind there's the a strong Fed. Hold on, Josh. There's a strong Sorry, Joe, correlate. There's a strong correlation between where mortgage spreads are mm -hmm. in the credit markets and where the home builder performance is. You could actually over, overlay it, and you'll see uh, directionally they're going to trade uh, with with a strong correlation. So mortgage spreads have tightened significantly. They're at the lowest levels in the last 16 weeks, and that's been favorable for home builders. If that continues, home builders continue to work higher. Okay, Josh, you were saying. I would just say the demography is the story here, and it's why I think this sector remains investable. There might be differences when Home Depot says, oh, this quarter, a lot of people did small renovations. Oh, this quarter, they bought big ticket items. You're always going to get that variability from one quarter to the next. But what will not change is how many 31-year-olds we have in this country mm -hmm. who have just started their families or are about to and need a house. You mentioned my holding an invitation homes. For me... This is the best way to play that idea. They own 80,000 single family homes. It's not apartment rentals, but it's rental houses. They're in 16 of the most desirable markets to be in. Okay. The appliances are modern, the technology is great, and that's why I think that stock has done so well this year, up about 13%. Uh, most of its peers have are, are not anywhere near that right. in the REIT sector. I wanna, I'm sorry, I want to get to one more before we take a break. It's Ulta, which you bounced from the Joe T, which is top pick at UBS. 35% upside, 560 is the price target. They say, quote, expecting more of a glow up than a blow up. Now this is the list, you know, there, there are certain stocks that you're going to be able to capture the rhythm and, and invest and trade in it really well. Ulta has not been one of those names for me. I will candidly admit that. It's a quality company with a good balance sheet, but there's a significant amount of volatility, and I've been shaken out of this names a few times. All right, we're going to take that break. We'll come back. We'll get you the setup for more earnings. I've got Josh with Zoom. I've got Jenny with Coles and Medtronic because they're all on deck. We'll do the setup next.
right, let's do the setup now. We do have some other earnings. Uh, after the bell, Josh, Zoom, talk to me. The stock is 14 times forward earnings expectations. So no matter what you think about Teams and Google Meet and competition, it's 14 times. So I'm not telling you it's going to be a good report. They're supposed to do a dollar eight in earnings per share. Anything above that, anything above a 1% revenue growth rate, there's there are almost no believers in this name, and I think it could move higher. So I don't know what will happen, but the stage is set for that potential of a surprise. We'll see. All right. Yes, we will. A Kohl's tomorrow, Jenny, before the bell. That's yours. It's interesting. If you look back at the other retailers who reported, so like Gap, Target, Ross, Macy's, Tapestry, pretty much everyone except for VF Corp, which I also own, they all they all actually had really good moves after they reported earnings, almost all of them. And what they were saying was inventory control, expense control, consumer not quite as weak as we expected. So I think Kohl's should fall into that category of things being not as bad as expected. Should be an okay quarter. You want to take Medtronic too? Because that's yeah, also before really the bell tomorrow morning. That's yours. Super interesting. So Medtronic's been pummeled on the GLP-1 drugs where, where they're saying like, okay, now that people are going to have less diabetes, we're not going to need new hips. We're not going to need new pacemakers. We're not going to need as many insulin pumps. But the reality is, is that's a long, long way off. And 7 million people already have diabetes and are already suffering from weight. So even though, even though in the long term, it could be bad for Medtronic's business, I'm thinking like 30 years. Right now you have a stock that's trading at 7% free cash flow yield, 14 times earnings. They have 7% growth next year, 8% growth net the year after that. So we expect them to go out and say, hey, we aren't actually seeing anything from the GLP-1 drugs um, hurting our business. I don't know if it'll get them out of the penalty box, but their numbers are really good and the valuation's really compelling. All right, well, we'll do final trades after this break. Hope you'll join me. Closing bell, 3 o'clock Eastern. we got Adam Parker, Big Technologies, Alex Kantrowitz as well on what this really means uh, for Microsoft, the chaos, if you want to call it that, at OpenAI. Malcolm Etheridge, remember, he sold his Alphabet shares saying they lost the lead. Well, we'll see what he thinks today. And Anastasia Amoroso will join us as well. Jonathan Krinsky, too. Hope you'll join me. Josh Brown, final trade, please. Staying long invitation homes. All right. Thank you, sir. Uh, Jenny Harrington. Sabra Healthcare. They own skilled nursing homes, things like that. Eight and a half percent dividend yield, ten and a half times FFO, a good place to hide out for now. Okay. Liz Young. Emerging markets X china I don't like the geopolitical risk there, but EM benefiting as the dollar keeps falling. What's yours, Joey T? So we own TradeWeb with volumes increasing in Q4, better overall market environment. I like this name to push above 100. The, the Joe T owns it? Is that what you mean, we? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, all right. I will see you on closing bell. Just a note here again, Apple 191. NVIDIA pushing towards 500 with earnings tomorrow. I'll see you on closing bell. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its 
its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report disclaimer. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.